We're going to the Gospel of John to chapter 1, and we are going to be looking at verses 19 down through verse 37. Let's just read through the verses, shall we? Then we'll talk our way through. In verse 19, we read, Now this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you, that we may give an answer to those who sent us? And what do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And the next day John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Basically, what you have here is a three-day period. On each of the three days, John gives a very brief testimony, brief but potent testimony, of who Jesus Christ is. And on each of those three days, they receive a wonderful illumination of what God is doing among the people of Israel concerning the Christ. I want to divide this section into three different categories, if I could give you a three-point outline. First of all, we have here, I think what is obvious, the delegation that is sent from the Pharisees to John. Then we have the denial of John as to some of their questions and implications. And then we have the declaration of John, really, of what he is all about. And we can begin by talking about the delegation that was sent to John here in verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Now to understand what is going on here, you first of all have to understand that John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, but the writer of the Gospel here, has a strategy. All the way through this Gospel he has a strategy. John has here the goal of proving that Jesus is the Son of God. He is not so concerned here in his gospel to show Jesus' relationship to the nation of Israel and all of its different dimensions as Matthew did. He is not so concerned here in this gospel to show Jesus as the suffering servant as Mark did. 
He is not really concerned to show how Jesus fits into the overall historical plan of salvation as Luke is. He is concerned rather to present Jesus as the Son of God, to present him as the God-man, to show that he is God in a body. That is his concern that many might read these words and believe and come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. At the very end of the Gospel of John, if you just flip there quickly over to the very end, down toward the end in chapter 20, a long way from where we are now, and it will be a long time until we get there. But in chapter 20 20 and verse 31, we have John's goal very simply put. He says, but these things are written... Chapter 20, verse 31, But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you might have life in His name. So that is John's particular goal. He has a strategy. It involves that goal. Back in the first chapter, in verse 1, he's right out of the chute, he's working on that goal. In verse 1 of John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we spend a lot of detail looking at what he meant by that, but there he is declaring the deity of Jesus Christ. In verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now as we come to verse 19, In chapter 1, you'll notice we're just launching into the public ministry of Jesus. Nothing here about the virgin birth. Nothing here about no room in the inn. Nothing here about the childhood of Jesus. Nothing about the 12-year-old Jesus ministering in the temple when his parents have gone home and have to come back and get him. None of that. Why? Well, because again, John has this particular focus, a particular goal. He doesn't record the first 30 years of Jesus' life because that is not his concern. And he knows that the other gospel writers have done that. He is concerned with this particular time in the life of Jesus and picks it up here with John the Baptist because it is here that Jesus becomes public with his ministry. It is here that Jesus begins to reveal himself as the Son of God, as the Messiah. That's the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. He is revealing himself as the Savior of the world. It all begins here. As we come to verse 19, we have the testimony of John the Baptist. I think it's helpful to understand where we are in the whole picture here. John the Baptist, as you know, baptized Jesus. But that happened about six weeks before this particular incident here. About six weeks earlier, he had baptized Jesus. Coming up out of the water, he had the testimony from God, which he's going to remind us of here. Jesus was then driven into the wilderness. What happens is Jesus goes into the wilderness, 40 days of fasting. Then he comes back and begins his public ministry. Well, as he comes back, he goes looking for John the Baptist. And he comes walking by. He gets among the crowd and he's there. And at just the right moment... He begins to manifest himself, and they're working together as a team. So I think it's helpful to understand that chronology of events here as we approach verse 19 and the testimony of John. As I said, there's a strategy on the part of John the Apostle. He has a goal to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. 
And he does that in a very interesting way. What he does is he brings in witnesses. He's like a lawyer building his case and he brings in witnesses to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. And what he does is he brings them one after the next. It's fascinating to watch how he does this. First he tells us what he believes and knows. Verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. That's what I know. Verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But then he begins to branch out from himself. And he starts pulling in different witnesses. And what he does here is he brings in John the Baptist. Throughout the book, he calls on God as a witness. He calls on even the words of Jesus as a witness. He calls on some of the deeds of Jesus as a witness. He brings in many individuals. And I'm so glad that he does. Because here in the Gospel of John, which happens to be one of the first books that we read in the Bible when we first come to Christ. How many read the Gospel of John first off when you first came to Christ? Lots of you. I know that I did. I started reading the Bible in Genesis. Somebody said, brother, you better stop right now or you're never going to make it through the Bible. All that killing and everything's going to upset you. So you better just skip on over to the Gospel of John and, and read that because that was written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And I'm so glad that John has written the way it is. With all of these witnesses being brought forth, I can still remember like it was five minutes ago, the first Bible study I heard in the Gospel of John. I was sitting in a Christian commune up in Oregon, in Eugene, Oregon, right across the street from the bus station. And the brother there, I'll never forget, he was sharing the Bible study. His name was John Aiken, sitting on a little chair. He taught the study in the account in John 9, where the blind man gets healed. And I remember, I had only been a Christian one month. And I'm sitting there listening to this, and he read there in John 9.24, it says, So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know this man is a sinner. They're pointing at Jesus, saying this man is a sinner. And he answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. And I remember listening to that and thinking, Yeah, that's about all I know. I've been a Christian one month, and all I really know is that I used to be blind, but now I see. And I'll never forget, from that day, I began to go out into the mall downtown there and witness for Jesus Christ. Eugene, Oregon is a college town. So you have all these erudite scholars that lurk around on the streets. And I used to go up to them street witnessing, hand out tracts and talk to them and, and get in these big discussions with them. And they'd really wax philosophical on me. Now I am 19 years old, known Jesus for about a month. And I remember in many of those discussions, saying to them, when it started to get real thick and real heavy and real intense, I'd say something like this, Well, I can tell you one thing, that whereas once I was blind, now I see. And you're still blind, because Jesus hasn't opened your eyes. Of course, that would really mess them up. But you know, it was true, and the Holy Spirit would drive that truth home. And, and I just thank God for these witnesses, this blind man healed. And I've used that over and over and over throughout all the years. I thank God that in chapter 3, we have Nicodemus. I mean, how many of us have used the account of Nicodemus over and over? And we get around to it. Well, you need to know about this guy who came to Jesus by night. Next thing you know, we're telling the people we're talking to, you must be born again. 
And we're, we're just feeling so good because we can relate to these stories, these witnesses that John brings forth in his gospel. By the time he's done doing this over and over, he has a very convincing and very conclusive case, and it has come through so many different channels. It's just marvelous. And he brings them on one after the next. John the Baptist is the very first in a long line of many of these witnesses, and it is for that reason then in verse 19 we read these words, Now this is the testimony of John. This is the testimony of John. That is why he is doing all of this. Understanding that then, you can read what John is saying with great interest and appreciate all of the words that are there. I do want to say something just in passing about John. It seems that from what we can put together, John entered his ministry about the age of 29. Right about the age of 29. And that encourages me because I'm just 29 tonight. No, I'm kidding. But it seems that John entered his ministry about the age of 29. And what that tells me is that there had to be years of preparation. And I just want to encourage you, this, just in passing here, don't despise the years of preparation. And know this, if it seems like God's taken a really long time to prepare you, maybe He's going to do something really great with you. I love to think about Chuck Smith and the 17 years of failure that he had in the ministry. I have been to Prescott, Arizona. I was involved in starting a Calvary Chapel in Prescott, Arizona back in the late 70s. And I remember we were meeting a Bible study and we began to look for a place to meet and somebody in the study said, well, you know what? It was an older person. They said, I was here years ago when Chuck Smith had his church here in Prescott, Arizona, one of his first churches. You know that one he talks about when he tells his failure stories? And I said, oh, really? Is it still around? And we went to the exact church. This little, dinky, tiny church. The one where they lived in the back room of the church. The one where he was out wrestling with the gigantic boulder on the side of the building. And Kay said, oh honey, leave that alone. I'm afraid it's going to crash into the church. And he said, no, I've got it right. It'll be all right. If, if I just sort of get all, you know, over here on the other side and all. And of course the boulder smashed into the church and ruined the wall. Anyway, I got to go see that church. It was such a thrill. And we were inquiring about renting it to even start the Calvary Chapel there, which in, we, in the end we met at a hotel. I got to see firsthand a visual aid of those years of preparation that Chuck has talked about so much, and that encouraged me. And I want to encourage you that John the Baptist went out public with his ministry around 29. There were years of preparation. Jesus Christ himself coming right behind him around the age of 30. Years of preparation and then great ministry took place. God loves you enough to prepare you long enough for the ministry that he has for you. Be encouraged along the way. So we come here to understand the strategy of John the Apostle. And that brings us here in our text to look at the investigators of John the Baptist. Anytime you find the name John in this gospel, it's John the Baptist and not John the writer, because he never uses his own name. He uses the alias, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So here we come to John the Baptist. Now, there are these guys, this delegation of guys that have come out to investigate him. And we can tell their identification here if we put a few things together. It says that this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Now, you don't find this term Jews that much in the New Testament. You find it 
almost 70 times, I believe, used by John. It's very interesting how he uses this term. You know, he was one of them. And yet he had given his life to Christ. He lived to see the day when the Messiah of Israel came and they rejected the Messiah. So what John does is rather than calling them Israel, he calls them the name the Gentiles gave them, Jews. And specifically he uses the term, which is not a negative term in and of itself, he uses the term in his gospel to describe really the Pharisees. Usually when he uses the term the Jews, he's pointing to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, those that did reject Christ. So you just need to understand how John uses the term. So when we read, when the Jews sent the priests and the Levites, we know that something's up. Now, verse 24, in fact, verifies that. It says, those who were sent were from the Pharisees. If you put that together, they were sent from the Jews, specifically the Pharisees, and that underscores what I just said to you. Now, the priests were those that were sent out to basically interrogate him. They were the religious leaders of the day, the established body of religious leaders. They held a tremendous power over the people. They had a, a power that we might not even be able to relate to in the church today. They traveled out to the wilderness with the Levites. You might wonder why the priests and Levites. The priests served in the inner precincts of the temple. And the Levites served more in the outer precincts and, and did basically custodial duties of the temple. But also the Levites, not only doing the custodial duties of the temple serving the priests, they also served as sort of a temple police. So you can't just have priests wandering around the wilderness. They might fall among thieves or whatever. So they have their own bodyguards going out into the wilderness to check this guy John out. First of all, they don't really understand him and they have to be ready for anything. So you have the priests and the Levites. That's their identification. Let's talk about their question in verse 19 again. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Now why all this concern? I mean, what is it that is the reason for their great interest? Well, you have to understand the history of the whole thing. Think of this, for 400 years, there had not been a prophet from God in Israel. For 400 years, four centuries, silence. God had not been speaking to His people through a prophet. All of a sudden, out in the wilderness, comes this thunderous man clothed in camel's skin, camel hair, garment, rough garment of the poor people, eating locusts and wild honey, the diet of many of the poor people out there in the wilderness. And the next thing you know, God is drawing in multitudes from everywhere. It is a work of the Spirit. It's something that God was doing. They realize that this is going on. And they are aware further that not only has a prophet suddenly burst on the scene after 400 years, but they are aware further that revival has broken out. Full-blown revival has broken out right in their midst. And they know this, it didn't come from them. They see that it came from this John the Baptist. Now, you remember from reading your Bible that he was the son of a priest. You remember his whole birth and all that. Very miraculous. In their eyes then, here's this guy living out in the desert, 
acting for all intents and purposes like a wild man. He is then to them a renegade, a renegade runaway maverick priest. And this revival has broken out around him and he's not in keeping with the status quo. And if there was anything that these religious leaders were into, it was the religious status quo. They liked everything to be the same all the time. They had refined their religion. They had even redefined their religion. And they had taken the people over a period of time down a road that led to dead orthodoxy. So that by now, Israel is spiritually dead. And these people who are their leaders are spiritually dead. And they've got everything just the way they like it. They're using it all to their advantage. In fact, we know about from the Gospels that they had a swap meet going in the temple, charging exorbitant prices and really using the people and making money off of them. These people, when they see revival break out around a renegade priest, and it's not coming from them, they are very concerned with checking it out and doing whatever they need to do to calm it down so things can stay the same and their jobs can remain the same and they can continue to get rich off the people. Money in the end was the name of the game and prestige and power and all of that. I am always amazed. You know, they travel out to the wilderness to see John. I am always amazed at how hard people like this work. They work so hard at keeping everything dead. I don't know how much experience you've had with the traditional status quo religious community in the world, but they work very hard at keeping things very dead. It's amazing to me the zeal that people like this can have and how hard they work at keeping those around them spiritually dead. And if somebody comes along with the Word of God led by the Spirit of God and they've got the life of God and they're getting all excited about God, they immediately label them as a fanatic. So you know they're coming down with their robes and their big outfits, their phylacteries and their hats, and they're coming out there and looking all polished and holy. And here's John probably all dirty. He didn't have any herbal essence shampoo out there. Hair probably looked really wild. And he's just not their picture of the religious status quo. So they come down to investigate him. And they are very curious about him. And so that's why they are there asking their question, Who are you? Thus we have the delegation. They come down to check John out. That leads us then to the second main thought here. And that is the denial of John Beginning in verse 20, John's denials to their questions. In verse 20, it says he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ, which means they obviously asked him, are you the Christ? And he said, I am not. And then this interesting thing here in verse 21, it says, and they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, no, I'm not. Now, why would they ask that question? Do you know why they would ask that question? These men knew the scriptures. They perverted them, yes, but they knew them. They knew the scriptures. So here they come out to check John out. They see this great revival. There's power with this man. So they say, well, are you the Christ? You've got this big following. No, I'm not. Well, then are you Elijah? See, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6 actually says... This is the last book in the Old Testament. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. 
They knew that that was in their scriptures, in the last book of their scriptures in the prophet Malachi. All of a sudden, after 400 years of silence, this guy bursts on the scene. Revival breaks out. People are getting baptized. They're repenting of sin. So, are you the Christ? Well, no, then you must be Elijah. No, I'm not Elijah either. Now, if you're really a well-read thinking Christian, it gets even more complicated at this point. Because if you're a real Berean and you know your Bible, you know that in Matthew chapter 11, in verses 13 and 14, Jesus said this, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Well, wait a minute. Is this guy causing revival out in the desert? What, is he a liar? Is he so humble he won't even tell the truth? I mean, what's going on here? Jesus said, if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Very interesting and confusing. It seems to me that what Jesus was saying was in effect that there was a sense in which he was the fulfillment of that prophecy. You remember when Elisha was following Elijah around. He was his disciple. And he knew that the time was coming for Elijah to be taken up by God. So he said, listen, if you can arrange it, just work it out. So that somehow I catch a double portion of your anointing before you take off and get airlifted out of here. And on the way out, as he's, God's taken Elijah up, he just works it out so he can throw him his cape and a double portion of Elijah's anointing follows on Elisha. I can never keep the two straight. Only when I tell this story, but nothing else. You know, you say to your kids, well, that was Elijah the prophet. <laughs> you know, you know Elijah. Elijah. You can keep it straight at this point anyway. He gets a double portion of Elijah's anointing. That means that Elisha went forth in the spirit and the power of Elijah. It seems to me that what we have in John the Baptist is a man out there preaching in the spirit and the power of Elijah. That in that sense, he would be the fulfillment of Malachi, the prophecy there in chapter 4. There's another thing you have to understand as well, and that is this. Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. Now that prophecy in Malachi is about the one who's coming before the great day of the Lord when he comes to his people. But he came to his people and they did not receive him, so he left. Now he has to come back again. He will come back again, we know in the Bible that it tells us he will come back again. And that at the time that he returns again, by that time, Paul uses the phrase, he says, all Israel will be saved. Not meaning every single person that ever lived among Israel, but meaning the nation as a whole in general will turn to Christ and receive him as their Messiah. Thus, Jesus is coming back and the people will receive him from his own nation. Evidently, the fulfillment of Malachi will come to its full fulfillment at that time. And if you read through Revelation, you can put that all together and verify it. So John here then is the forerunner of the Lord. And yet because he was rejected, there's more that has to be done. He has to come back again and he has to have another one heralding his coming. And that is the reason I think for the confusion. And he says, I am not Elijah. We're not into reincarnation here in the Bible. And so he's not Elijah, yet he's ministering with that type of power and that type of authority 
And in that sense, I'm certain that is why Jesus said what he said in Matthew 11. Now, he says, I'm not Elijah and I'm not the Christ. And they say, all right, then are you the prophet? And he answered no. Very quickly he answered no, which means he understood what they meant. What does he mean by, what do they mean by that? Are you the prophet? The only thing I can figure out is that in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. That seems to be a prophecy about Jesus Christ, Moses then being a type of Jesus Christ. And so the prophet. Are you the prophet Moses talked about? See, remember, we've got all these last day seminars we go to. We have all this last day preaching, end time stuff, movies, and on and on and on. We're kind of authorities on this stuff. But at this time, when they're standing in the desert asking questions of John, and he's got his messy hair and his camel outfit on, and a couple of locusts crawling around his hand, he's going to kill and fry later. It's not all that evident to them. So they're asking these questions, and it's not as clear to them as it is to us now. Keep that in mind. So are you the prophet? No. Are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Well then, who in the world are you, and what are you doing out here baptizing people? So John's denials to their questions. Then we come to John's description of himself. I just love this. This ministers so much to me. I think of everything so far... In this section, this ministers to me the most. Then they said to him, Then who are you, that we may give an answer to those who sent us? And what do you say about yourself? Basically, John gives him a good description of himself. And in the process, he displays his humility and God-given insight about who he is. And he is a great example for us in the process. He displays his humility, may I say, by what he does not say. Now, before you go on and see what he says, think about what he could have said. Do you realize there's so many great things he could have said about himself? He could have said something like, well, I'll tell you who I am. I'm the son of a priest. I'm a priest, basically like you guys. He could have said, I'll tell you who I am. I'm a miracle man. My parents could not have children. They were getting up in age and an angel came and foretold my birth. I'm a miracle man. They even gave him the name. John. I'm called John because they were told by God to call me John. I'm a miracle man. That's who I am. Let me tell you something else. Filled with the Spirit from birth. In fact, there was a time when I was in the womb. And I leaped when I heard an announcement of the Christ. Do you realize who I am? I am really something. Now I may look wild, but I am really something. You see, he could have told them some great things about himself. So by what he didn't say, he displays his great humility. He understood humility. I want to understand humility. See, James 4, 6 says that God gives more grace. Therefore, because he gives more grace and wants people to receive it, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I think John understood that. In 1 Peter 5, 5, Peter says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And in verse 6 of 1 Peter 5, Peter says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. What a statement. 
Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. In other words, you cannot do anything wiser in your life than to humble yourself under God because His hand is so mighty and because He loves to take humble people and do great things with His mighty power with them. He gives more grace and He loves to give it and manifest it to humble people. I believe John understood that. Later Jesus said, There has never been a greater man than John the Baptist. He was so humble, he humbled himself, and out of the lips of our dear Lord himself was proclaimed to be the greatest man who had ever lived to that point. So by what he doesn't say, John gives a description of himself that displays his humility. But let's go on and talk about what he does say, because even by what he does say, he displays his humility. In verse 23 he said, I am the voice. I'm a voice. Of all the things he could have said and what he did say, I'm a voice. Not even human. I'm a voice. He doesn't ascribe any glory to himself at all. I'm just a voice. Just an announcer. That's all I am. I'm just a herald. Implication is this. Let me tell you the important thing. You're out here to question me. You want to know about me. I want you to know up front. Me, this guy, John, I'm not the issue. I'm not important. Something far more important here. I'm a voice. And what my voice has come to announce is what you guys need to focus in on. You've come out to find me. You need to find the one I am the voice to announce. I'm a voice, just a voice. That shows his humility. He says, I am the voice that was foretold basically by the prophet Isaiah because he says in verse 23, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. You want to know who I am? I'm a voice. You want to know exactly who I am? I'm not Elijah. You want to know exactly who I am? I'm not Christ. But I'll tell you who I am. I'm the one Isaiah spoke of that would come crying out in the wilderness, and that's why I'm literally in the wilderness. And I am here to make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. And he basically just quotes Isaiah in saying that. In other words, he knew exactly who he was. And yet he had this fine balance of humility and knowing who he was at the same time. He understood how high his office was. He understood how high his calling was. That is a fine balance I believe that only God can give. And John had that fine balance that came to him from God himself. I just pray that all of us can have that balance. It's alright for you to know who you are. It's alright for you to know what your gifts are. But may God manifest His gifts and at the same time manifest a great measure of humility within you so that you know who you are but you're humble at the same time. It's exactly what Paul was getting at in Romans 12.3. He said, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that is given to you. I know exactly who I am. I know exactly who I am not. And I know exactly why I am what I am. It's because of God, because of His goodness, because of His grace. And I take my calling very seriously. I'm here to prepare the way of the Lord. I am the voice that is preparing God's people for His Christ. That's what He was telling them. Boy, what a, what a time. What a moment. You see, in those days, whenever a king would come into town to visit an area, they would spend a lot of time fixing the roads, preparing the roads, so when the king came and traveled down those roads, the roads were fit for a king. They knew that. That's the way it was in those days. So when he says, I'm the one preparing the way of the Lord, he's saying, I'm getting everything ready. I'm laying it all out because the king's coming right behind me. I'm preparing the way for the king of kings and the Lord of lords. 
And the interesting thing is that Jesus validated exactly that. In Matthew 11, 7, As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I say to you, more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. That is exactly who John was. Here to say, I'm announcing what you all have been waiting for for so long has come upon you. It's time to listen. It's time to listen to this voice crying in the wilderness. And perhaps, just perhaps, they were so dead that God had to spin off somebody away and outside of the dead orthodoxy to sound the message afresh and anew with that old-time power, that old-time fire, so that He could get the people's attention from a living source. And I believe that's the, why, the reason that it happened the way that it did out in the wilderness. Well, we've seen the delegation and the denial, and we don't have time to go on to the declaration. That just gives me more time to work on it for next week. Which is good, because three days, each day he says one thing very profound, and then waits till the next day, says something else very profound about Jesus, and then wraps it up and people start coming to Christ. So I'd just as soon have another week to work on that part of it. It's good to study these things, isn't it? Some Bible studies convict you deeply of sin. Some Bible studies encourage and give you joy. Some Bible studies affirm you in who you are in Christ. And some Bible studies teach you about God's plan of salvation, about who is here, doing what, why He's doing it. It's the kind of study we've had here. These are the kind of things in the long run, they just fill out the picture of your life so that you understand more and more and more and the payoff comes in the long run out there in the everyday life in the trenches. I like studies like this. So we're going to stop here. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you, Lord. We have left within our thoughts here a man described by you, Lord Jesus, as the greatest man who ever lived until that point in time. And yet he was a man who was so humble. A man, when asked who he was, could have said so many things about himself and really boasted, and yet left all of us such a great example of how we are to be. We are to be humble. Lord, I think we understand the reason why, and that is so we can get out of the way and men could see Christ through us. Here is the forerunner pointing the world to Jesus Christ. Lord, don't let us miss His example. Don't let us miss, Lord, His great secret of humility, which was such a major factor in His clarity. And as a result, a major part of His effectiveness and His influence. Father, do help us to follow along in the example of John the Baptist and to follow Jesus, the one he pointed to. And we will be careful to give you all the glory. For we do ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.